Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The Details podcast on the fallout from Posey Parker's visit got the expected vitriol and the nasty personal attacks that come with controversial topics these days. But the message that really stood out was from Becky Moss. She wrote, My partner, flatmates and other trans members of my community have been concerned with who is telling our stories. For Becky, a non-binary queer photojournalist, it's really personal. She was there at the protest taking photos, but she says the only ones that were published were taken by cis men. But what does it matter as long as the story gets out there? Today, we look at story sovereignty and who has the right to tell these stories. Taking back control over our narratives from the inception of the idea to the finished honga in bookshelves means we can tell our stories our way. For so long, our voices haven't been able to be heard. We'll hear from South Auckland photographer Geoffrey Matotia. I 100% believe in Pacific people telling Pacific stories, but there are barriers in terms of like access to resources and access to like money. I've also called in my sister Petra Brett Kelly, a documentary maker who is making big changes to the way she is telling other people's stories. It really is modern colonisation. Why? Because I'm going, I'm a, a white person from a privileged first world country and I'm going and I'm extracting stories and to what benefit for the people. But let's go back to the Posey Parker protest in Auckland, where Becky Moss was in the thick of it. I was right up in the rotunda with the other photojournalists and right up at the very centre of things, really. And I was the only person there that wasn't, from what I can tell, cis man with a camera. Um, The only other like woman presenting person I saw with a camera was actually the police photographer. But otherwise, it was a lot of my peers in photojournalism and their men. I know a lot of them personally, I respect their work, but I think there was definitely a lacking presence of diversity on who was actually capturing that moment. Yeah, so what I reached out about was discussing with my community about who gets to write history, because I think we see... It was really like seeing history being written in real time, seeing whose opinions were being published, whose photos were being published very certain images from the protest were the main ones being published both in New Zealand media and then taken and published overseas. And it painted a very specific picture of how the counter-protest looked if you weren't there. And I went through and I looked at all the bylines for each one. And you have predominantly white cis men, often straight, who are covering a lot of most media, a lot of staff photographers across the board. And I think we I think we need to start assessing that mm. because those are the people that are capturing history and those are the images that we will look back on in 10 years' time when we've forgotten about all the nuances and that's the images we'll associate with events. Yeah, I think that yeah. needs to change. And we're talking about mainstream media here, aren't yeah. we, really? So are you certain that... All the other photos that were published were taken by cis men. And when we say cis men, we mean men who are... Assigned male at birth and then um, consider themselves men. 
Are you are you certain of that? Because I'd hate for somebody to come back to me and say. <laughs> Obviously, no one can ever be certain. Um, I know a lot of the photographers personally, um, or by association through various work, and then I went and searched up the other ones. But obviously I will never be able to say with 100% certainty, um, especially since different people keep different parts of their identity public versus private. But we're looking at predominantly over the the wide area and from what I saw on the day, being right up there with them. How are your photos different to the photos that they've taken? I think my photos are less inflammatory. I had a lot of information going in and a lot of insider information. I know my community. I know who the main players were. I don't have to do a Google search later to figure out who is in the photos. I know those people already, um, which I think in terms of fast turnaround press photojournalism is really important. But I think the fact is that I'm going, because I'm going in with my biases versus another man's biases who might not know anything about the community, you might know some, who might have just been assigned that thing that day. It's like, you've got to cover this protest, it's another protest. I think all of those different viewpoints should be shown. Yeah. I think it's less about saying my images are better. I don't think that. I think... It's about having the diversity of coverage when it comes to events like this that have been really big and have spiralled a lot in terms of through the internet and through a lot of media and being talked about for weeks. So visually, if I was going to look at one of your pictures Mm. and look at one that was published in The Herald or Staff or on Mm. RNZ or Newsroom, what would be the difference? There's less faces in mine. Why? Because I've seen my friends get death threats. And if people are wearing a mask and look trying to look away from a camera, why why do I need to capture their face to make a point? Um, one of my favourite images is with a person in drag with who's behind all the police line-up who are stopping the protesters. There was images that I took that had her face in them and I chose to like edit the ones without her face um, because I don't think including her face made the image better but I know that taking and choosing the ones without her face could save potentially her a lot of violence. Some photojournalists will tell me that's going against the ethics of photojournalism when it comes to things like this and the amount of hatred and vitriol that's been directed at the community, do I need to include their face in it and publish Mm. that to the entire world for the rest of the world to see and people to be able to hunt them down? Is that what happens? So people actually look at those photos, try and identify those people, and then they target them. Yeah. So you've taken a series of photos, and you've obviously tried to um, sell them or... I did try. Yeah, and what sort um, of response did you get? No response, mostly. Um, a lot of ghosting, um, which is frustrating when you work for the organisations a lot of the time. Ghosting, just explain to me ghosting. ghosting. no response. Just ignored you. Yeah, mm. which is understandable with the amount of emails people get every day. In your ideal world, what needs to happen so that, you know, photos like yours taken by 
someone from your community actually get into mainstream media? I think editors need to think about who they already have working for them or who they know. A lot of incredible BIPOC, incredible queer, incredible woman photojournalists in this country work for media publications or quite often, but they're still not sent out to document their own communities. And as we move away from having lots and lots of staff photographers to mostly contractors, people can make that choice. It's but I know it's often feels safer for a lot of people to go with someone that's been working there for 40 years or 10 years and they know he'll get what the photos. What they'll come back with. Yeah. Mm. But I think it's important to take chances. Trusting people to be able to photograph their communities often means that you have a lot more inside knowledge. You also have a lot more trust from the people in that community for that photojournalist to be there and trust is a big part about capturing images that are a lot more vulnerable or intimate. We're going back even further now to September 2021 and Auckland in lockdown. More than half of the current 107 cases in the Delta outbreak are from the Pacific community. We don't have nearly uh, enough of our people vaccinated, so that's that's a concern. USUB can reveal a COVID-positive man believed to have gang links was allowed to isolate at home in a South Auckland property. We don't want uh, this to be another bashing of South Auckland. It was stories like this that inspired photographer Geoffrey Matotia to do something different. Geoffrey works at AUT supporting young Pacifica students. His photographic series, based on life in South Auckland, are published in Stuff and NZGO. A lot of media and everyone else was talking about the deficit and the impacts of COVID, um, which was fine. But I think for myself, I wanted to flip it. So during that September, October, November period, I was driving around South Auckland to people's houses that I've never met before and taking their photo in their front yard. When you see photos in mainstream media uh, that are taken of your community or the portrayal of your community... What what do you normally see? A lot of it has kind of been in around like negative stories and negative storytelling, negative kind of perspectives. Um, it's always at a deficit perspective, um, and never. What does that mean? So deficit? deficit to me means there's some wrong in the story, or there's some problem, especially when you talk about things around poverty a lot of social issues that happen to do with um, our communities or my community. A lot of what's missing is the celebratory things, just people consuming all of this media that, yeah, that portrays, like, Pacific people, people from South Auckland, like, in these negative light. Why do you think that is? I think it's just good clickbait. (laughs) Like, that's their, that's how they make money. You were saying some interesting stuff about trust in the use of images taken, that they won't be used to harm or denigrate the community or be used to look at them like a zoo. Mm. What do you mean by that? I think for a lot of kind of the documentary style photography, you can have people that have been hired to just pop in and pop out like a zoo because it's, it's kind of having like this random like spectator and then those images are used to then add to the story. But it was a bit too transactional for me. Like mm-hmm. you're coming and taking these images and then taking them out 
I don't know where they're going. Um, and especially if you're doing like a large scale event, like you're taking photos of people that I guess don't necessarily know where that piece of media is being put out. Like if you see a random photo on Facebook and people are commenting like horrible stuff, yeah, that's where that trust part comes in. And also who has rights to that photo? Yeah, I mean there can be laws obviously around public photography, around public events, but I think then is that how we view it in like a Western like mindset around those things, whereas there's a bit more nuance in having ownership of those images that are of you and being used. But I think there are ways in which you can kind of look after that relationship. The relationship with the people yes. who are in the photos 100%. that you take. Like, for example, the Rugby League World Cup photos that I took, like I've been learning that it's it's so easy to just introduce yourself and to ask them if you can take a photo and let them know where those photos are going, all in kind of one brief sentence. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that relational part is super important and it's super simple. Mm -hmm. For myself, when I'm shooting community events, that ownership never sits with me, um, especially if I'm not commissioned by like a bigger entity or organisation. Yeah, I think that's important to me is then what are they getting out of me taking their photo other than like me posting it on my social media. Where do you stand on story sovereignty? Do you believe that the stories of your community should only be told by people from your community? So should only be told by you and not, for example, me? This might not be kind of the general consensus, but I think people are so like, attached to the stories of their community um, which is great, and I 100% believe in Pacific people telling Pacific stories, but there are barriers in terms of, like, access to resources and access to, like, money. I think there should be an openness on both parts to then be able to push these stories out further because that's what we want is to push stories out further to outside of our own communities and bubbles. Like, if we're just telling our own stories to our own communities, that's cool, but how do we, like, get that out? even further, and I think that's totally in partnership with people outside of that community. How are people going to know it's me and or you? Well, that's it. That's like, I'm going to have to be really <laughs> be stern. Question I'll be stern about my question lines. Okay. I'm going to be cold and calculated. Okay. I'm not going to be kind. <laughs> I'll tell Mum. Um, this sounds like I'm arguing with myself, but no, it's my sister Petra. She travels to far-flung places to tell people's stories so your current documentary is set in Nigeria and it's about some Nigerian children. You've made documentaries in Afghanistan about Afghans. You've been in Sudan telling that story. You've told a story called Māori Boy Genius. Have you ever t been told that you shouldn't be telling these stories? Yep, often. All the time. What do people say? Um, well, it sort of started um, with Māori Boy Genius, and now looking back on it, that came out 11 years ago. I believe that we will lead the way for all Indigenous peoples of, of the world, and he's going to play a big role in it. Whether he knows it or not, but as far as we are concerned, he is going to. Actually, I'm quite fuckamā, and I don't mean shy, I mean ashamed of how I made that film.
and I wouldn't make it today. Why? What did people say? I mean, I knew I'd be challenged. We were prepared for that and we talked about it with the family. Do you really want people to tell the story? And they said yes. But how I conducted myself and how I made that film um, is not acceptable at all. So the first time I was actually challenged in a big way was at Sydney Film Festival. And Nardo Wera Pumano Afeti, the subject of the film, came with me to Sydney with some members of his family. And there was a woman in the audience who said, what right do you have to tell the story? And I said, that's a really valid question. And we have talked about this. And maybe Nardo Wera or his mother would like to, first of all, discuss why they agreed for me to tell the story. And then I'll say my piece. Um, now I wouldn't make that film in that same way because I don't think I have the right to tell that story. I needed to have others or support Māori people to be at the table. How would you make it differently? Maybe now I would actually um, mentor a Māori director to make it or we would co-direct and I would produce... Um, I'm much more confident now that I have been learning te reo for some years. I did interviews where I asked them to respond in, in Māori, and I had no idea what they were saying. I mean, that's just so culturally insensitive. So now I would make sure, um, you know, legitimately that there was representation. I mean, at the time, we were, I was like, oh, the sound operator's Māori. I mean, it's terrible. I'm embarrassed to say what, you know, how we thought we were ticking. No, I'm not going to say we. It's me, how I thought I was ticking boxes. This whole kind of extraction of stories, um, it really is modern colonisation. Why? Because I'm going, I'm a, a white person from a privileged first world country, and I'm going and I'm extracting stories. And to what benefit for the people that are the subjects of my film? That's the question that I started. And so then my next film, A Flickering Truth, that I was making in Afghanistan. Which is about? It's about the three um, Afghan males who fight to save the film archive of Afghanistan, 100 years, 14,000 hours of films from the Taliban, from destruction, from just the elements, from poverty. And during the making of that film, I was lucky to attend the Sundance Film Festival Labs, and I started talking about it then with one of my advisors and said, you know, I just don't know about this. I just feel I'm feeling uncomfortable. And he was like, yep, you've got to really think. It's not morals and ethics. It's how do you sleep at night? That's your question. And so I said to her, right, well, I'm, you know, full into this film. I can't, I can't stop now. So I have to think about what I do beside it. So I talked about it with the director of this film archive in Afghanistan. I said, you know, I'm feeling really uncomfortable. Perhaps I should pay you as I would Getty Images, which is this international archive. Shall I pay you the equivalent of what I might pay them, them which was 25000 US for the 20 minutes of archive that I thought I might use, um, this film archive of Afghanistan? And he said, don't give us the money. That will disappear here in Afghanistan. There's too much corruption here. Every time you come, why don't we have a shopping list of equipment, film equipment, and every time you come, you bring something else, just something, you know, not, not the whole kit because then we'll be taxed. And let's get you to meet some young filmmakers here who are at university here and let's start to try and encourage them to tell that story. So he was the one that was the light bulb moment for me to kind of go, yeah, it's about me um, encouraging locals to tell their own stories. 
Now, I don't think that that excludes me from telling the story, but it has to be a much more even playing field. If you hadn't have gone in there to tell that story, could a local filmmaker have told the same story, actually got the story out there and maybe made a difference? No, a local wouldn't have been able to because in developing countries they don't have the access to money, resources that I have. And my whole career is built around risk-taking because I come from a place of safety and security. And while financially, you know, I, I, it's friggin' tough, as you know, um, I still can take risks. A local filmmaker in Afghanistan can't take the same risks and doesn't have the same resources or opportunities to sell it internationally and get it out there and get it on the international stage. And even the subjects of many of my films have said, we wouldn't have a local telling this story. Because I enter into these situations with such naivety and, you know, I don't have an, a local agenda. Yeah. But somebody said to me once, the fact you're making this film now makes it impossible for a local filmmaker to ever make this film for the next five years because you won't have two films the same having a marketplace internationally. But then if that's the case, why are you making this film in Nigeria? Mm. Yeah. Because tell us a little bit about that film. So this film is called Crocodile, which is the English translation. Here we go, I'm being a coloniser. The English translation of the town these kids live in. Nine kids, age, when I started, age between five and 18. I've been filming for over three and a half years. And they are rewriting, this is my logline, rewriting themselves out of the usual future of youth, scamming, drug running, um, crime, by setting their lives in the sci-fi world of 2089. So I, I heard about them, took me three days to sort of track them down, a week later hopped on a plane and started filming and... On about day three or four, I said, you know, what I'd like to do is commission you to make a short film about the first day you met me and to um, show me as a great white monster. <laughs> and they were just like, what? What? Why, why would we do that? No, 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 because they're so lovely and respectful. And that was a way that I thought I would address this, me telling the story. And I'd also started recording my thoughts uh, my journey there, going and changing money, just moving around the place. So it's a combination of your experience and their experience. It was combined. at that stage because oh, that's how I thought I would address this white saviour complex. Mm, mm. And then some other things that happened, I thought, oh, God, this is, this is imploding. So then um, when everything came back on board with them, I said, I actually want you to co-own this film, be called co-producers and have authorship over it. So we we arrived at a contract. I think I'm safer now making this film. I think the film is safer. And they, I know, they feel such strength now and power. Which raises the issue of these places that you go to. The people lead precarious lives. So that responsibility is huge, isn't it? It is huge. I've just got a Winston Churchill scholarship and I want to go and study all these things to talk with others internationally about story sovereignty, intellectual property, obligations on the on the part of the filmmaker, what are the practices in place, how to keep my subjects safe. I suppose it comes back to 
that question, is that story going to be told? Yep, there's that. (laughs) But I need to ask myself some questions about how I tell that story and whether I bring on board local people to tell that story. But if we don't push and shove and kind of make change, I just think, what a freaking shame. If their stories, if they weren't, didn't have the ability to tell their stories and their stories weren't getting out there. So I've got to use the influence, the small influence I have and the small position I have Mm. to push for change. I'm feeling at the moment that if I have an idea, I'm still going to make it happen. It's about how I make it happen. So, Becky, where do you stand on the argument about story sovereignty? Do you believe that only people from your community should be telling your stories? I would probably get hate for saying this, but no, I don't I don't believe in complete story sovereignty. The ideal world would be having the balance of if we're going to tell stories about people and talk about them and discuss it in very academic ways, they should also be at the table and have a voice and therefore getting a lot more different viewpoints as opposed to having a very specific one kind of layer viewpoint on history and setting that in stone while we kind of move on and unless someone writes these big long articles or big long books and about it, that's how we're going to remember these events. When I asked you this question, you said I'll probably get some hate for this. Why? Is, are there a lot of people who feel that only people in the community should be telling that story. Yeah. It would be interesting to see what sort of response you get then. We'll, we'll stay in touch. <laughs> yeah. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Peter Brett-Kelly, Becky Moss and Geoffrey Matotia. Kakite anō.